Open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. I'll read the entire chapter of Titus chapter 2. We won't be going through the entire chapter, but Titus chapter 2. And we'll read the whole chapter. Hear the word of God. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech they cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may not or may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Bow your heads with me as we pray. Father, we are so thankful that you have called us and invited us to come into your presence today. We thank you that you have blessed us with your presence. We know that our songs of praise and our prayers have, because of our Savior, come into your presence. And because of Christ, they're a sweet-smelling sacrifice. And now, Lord, may we have ears that are ready to hear your word. I pray that your spirit would open our hearts and, D, that we would hear what the spirit says to the church. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So you mean to tell me? That all I need to do is believe in Jesus and I can live however I want and be saved? I've heard that a number of times. 
when I've explained the gospel to someone. They automatically think it's unfair. It's not surprising when Shelley and her family first started to share the gospel with me. That's the first thing I thought. So you can do whatever you want and just believe in Jesus and everything's okay. It's a perennial problem. I'm reading John Owen's book, The Communion of God, and Owen is answering that question even in the 17th century. And more than Owen, in Romans, Paul has to answer the same question. People are saying, may we sin that grace may abound? Now that we're under grace, is it okay to sin? And Paul emphatically says, God forbid. There's often that fear that preaching grace will lead Christians to live in sin. The text that we're looking at, verses 11 through 14, completely repudiates that fear. Now, to be fair, some of the reason why people think that is because that's often how we live. That you can believe in Jesus and live however you want, and everything's going to be fine and you'll go to heaven. And sadly, some Baptists preach that. <laughs> so there, we have this fear, but I, I'm not. This message today is not going to focus on answering that question for the general public, but it's going to focus on us. What what is our motivation for living for God? Is it the rules that someone has made up? Is it, is it guilt because you don't want to act that way and have your other Christian friends see you? What, what's motivating us to live for God? I want to show us positively from this text how grace ought to be the motivation. Now, in verses 1 through 10, Paul tells us one motivation in living for God is that is so that we adorn or decorate the gospel of God. We don't want to detract from the gospel by living ungodly lives, but grace is a better reason to live for God even in that. And that's what Paul teaches us in this text. Now, he teaches us that grace works in three ways to encourage believers in Christ to live godly lives and, and to do good works. He teaches it in three ways. Number one, and if you're keeping notes, this will be the basic outline. Number one, grace appears. Number two, grace trains. And number three, grace redeems. So that's what we're going to be looking at in this text today. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So the appearance of grace in Christ, the grace of God in Christ, in history, is an encouragement to godly living. Paul uses this word appear, which is a technical word for the appearance of Christ in history. We usually use it in his second coming, but it also can be in reference to his first coming, to his incarnation. We see this brought out more clearly in 
uh, Paul's second letter to Timothy, uh, chapter 1. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, starts out who, but it's in the context it's speaking of God. So verse 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. In this text, we see that God intended to be gracious to his people before the beginning of time. He, put, he gave that grace to Christ, and this was his intention. And then, in verse 10, this grace appeared historically in Christ's first coming, and especially in the gospel, that is, his death and resurrection. And then Paul and the other apostles and people who preach the gospel today continue to proclaim this grace of God even today. So what, we're, what I think the Bible is saying is that grace is not just an abstract concept somewhere up there. Grace is in the person of Jesus Christ. Just as John t- chapter 1 tells us, the law came through Moses but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. doesn't mean that Jesus had a handful of grace on one hand and a handful of truth in the other, and that when he came, he brought both of these things with him. No, Jesus is the incarnation of grace and truth. And in order for that grace to be applicable to sinners, just as grapes have to be crushed to enjoy the juice or the wine that comes from them. So our Savior had to be crushed so that we could enjoy the grace that's found in him. So the grace of God appeared in history in Jesus Christ. And at his coming, he brought salvation for all people. Salvation, of course, implies that there's a danger. And there's really two dangers that people are in. One, we're a danger to ourselves because we're corrupt in all, in all of our parts. Remember last week I talked about how St. Augustine says that we're disordered. We were made in the beginning to, to use our reason to find what is good. And then we choose what is good and love what is good. But because of the fall, we're all corrupted, and all of that's disordered and messed up. And rather than choosing, choosing the good, we, we find, rationalize for whatever we want and call that the good and pursue that. So one of the, pro, one of our, the dangers is ourselves because we're corrupt, and we lack righteousness because of that. We're not holy. We, we have nothing to offer God. Our hands are empty of good works. And in any of the works that we would bring, 
are stained with that corruption which we were brought into the world with. So, and then to top it off, we make things worse. This corruption that we're born with leads us into sin and we happily and freely and willingly sin against God. So the first thing God does in saving us and rescuing us is rescue us from ourselves, for our own corruption. But he also rescues us from God's wrath. Because of our sins and unrighteousness, we're, in danger, we're made liable to the wrath of God. And because Christ in his grace came and was crushed for our iniquities, And pierced for our sins. God's wrath was satisfied. God's wrath is no longer against his people. Christ turned, turned God's wrath away. And rescued his people from danger. He brought salvation for all people. It doesn't matter what group you belong to, whether you're a Jew or Gentile, and however how we divide ourselves today. It doesn't matter what identity you have as a group. Christ came to save people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And when he did so, he not only, of course, believers, we benefit from Christ's redemption from Christ's grace most of all. We receive all of the benefits, but even those who are unbelievers still receive some of the benefits. For example, God's judgment is withheld. The gospel is preached, and we get to live in a fairly safe culture because of the prevalence of the gospel. So Christ came in his grace. He appeared bringing grace, and this grace impacted believers especially, but everyone in reality. So grace, grace appeared in history. We need to consider what grace has done for us. Grace chose you before time. It motivated the Father to give Christ for you and connected you to the gospel. Grace gave you a new heart, forgiveness, a righteous standing, spiritual growth. Grace rescued you from, your own, from yourself and your own sin and from the wrath of God. And grace, at the end of time, if you're trusting in Christ, will give you eternal life. To anyone who says that salvation by grace alone takes away the motivation to obey God, how could anyone who experiences all of these benefits of grace continue in sin? Grace promotes godliness and good works in our lives by promoting gratitude to God in our hearts. makes us grateful because grace makes us realize we're guilty sinners and our only hope is in Christ. Jonathan Edwards said the only thing that we, we offer for our salvations is the sin that made it possible. 
So grace teaches us gratitude. Not only does did grace does God's grace motivate us by coming into the world by appearing, but it also trains us. So the training of grace encourages godly living. According to the scripture here, uh, grace trains us in three ways. It, it, it tra- trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And I'm putting all those together. Okay, so we're so first of all we're to forsake ungodliness and worldly lusts or worldly passions. We're to say no to those things. Ungodliness is a disregard for God or his law and a rejection of all that is sacred. We know what ungodliness is. We sadly see it in our hearts. We see it in our as we step outside, as we watch TV or movies, we see ungodliness. We're told to we're taught by grace to reject all of that. We're we're taught by grace to reject worldly lusts or worldly passions and these worldly passions are things like power fame and wealth sex that we can make a longer list if we need to and none of those things in and of themselves are wrong the problem is when we have an inordinate desire for any of those things we want we want them not so that god can be glorified in our use of these things but we want them as ends in of themselves we want them so that we can have power so that we can have fame and so that we're glorified rather than god that is a worldly passion a worldly lust that grace teaches us to say no to the way grace if you've ever been a teacher or a parent or have tried to teach a Sunday school lesson or, or preach a message, you've probably had the experience, I wish I could just get through to these people. I wish I could get into their hearts and show them how valuable and how important what I'm teaching them is. The good news is, in gospel preaching, that's exactly what happens. Grace gets into our hearts. It's not just me talking so that my words are working in you, but as I'm preaching, the Spirit is preaching to your heart as well. He's getting through even when I can't. And and more than that, the Spirit, not only does He work in our hearts in that way, but the Spirit and believers in Jesus Christ implants a habit of grace in us. That's what the Puritans called it. So that our default as believers is to obey God. Our default for believers is to do good works. It's our a habit or a pattern. So God by his spirit is, and his grace is teaching us to forsake all these things. And, and instead... We are told in Scripture in verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And then he says to live self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age. 
waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. So we're so rather than saying we are to say no to this ungodliness, we're to forsake that way as believers in Christ. And honestly, if the Spirit is living in you and you have this habit of grace, these worldly passions and desires cannot inhabit the same person. Something's going to have to give. But we're to live soberly, righteously, and godly. We live righteously in conformity to God's laws. To be godly means to make, our, make it our aim always to please God with our thoughts, attitudes, motivation, and action. And we have to be careful here because our, our heart is inclined to make rules and to make a law. So we hear this and say, aha, this is what we have to do. Living this way is not a matter of primarily of us making a decision that we're going to do this. That's the whole point of what Paul is telling us in this passage. It's not a matter of, okay, these are the, these are the two thing, three things that I got to do. I got to be sober, I got to be righteous, and I got to be godly. Now I got to try really hard to do that. Yes, there's a striving after these things. I'm not denying that. But ultimately, this is the work of the Spirit in your heart, causing you to see all the goodness and mercy in Christ. It causes you to love Christ and adore him. And so you want in the deepest recesses of your heart to live this way. And when you expose yourself to the means of grace, God's word, prayer, communion, uh, being with God's people, that's what's going to be this, this sober sobriety, righteousness, and godliness will be produced in your life. And then finally, we are to wait eagerly for Christ's return. This present age, as you know, is full of ungodliness and worldly desires. That's the age we're living in. But as believers, grace has taught us not to live for this world, but to live for another world, for another time, for the age to come. Now, this age has already come, in a sense, at Christ's first coming, but it's not all that it's going to be in the future there are still more and greater things that are going to happen. All of this world, everything that does not, that is filled with sin and worldly lust and desires, all the power, fame, wealth, and sex of this world is going to perish in fire. It will be destroyed. We ought as believers not to live for this age, but to, for the one to come. This is what Paul is call, calling us to do. We have another city. That doesn't mean that we ignore what's going on here, but our hope is in this city, not in the one to come. And we, so, we fall for this. 2024 is coming up, and we're gonna, we'll fall for it again. We get all our hopes up. If just the right candidate will get in there, everything's going to be okay. And even if the perfect candidate was in there for four years, the most he can be there is eight years, and we're going to have it all over again. 
We can't, we're not living for this world. Our hope is not for the next temporary ruler of this temporary kingdom. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who made everything, the Lord of all, the king of kings and Lord of lords. That's who we're hoping for. That, this cycle one day is going to end. There'll be no more elections. We won't have to worry about every four years and the second year in between because Christ will reign as king. Brothers and sisters, in fact, he's already reigning. And that kingdom ought to be the place where our hope is. Briefly, before we get to the next point, it's so important to understand to understand the grace of God and, and how it frees us from the bondage to the law. When I learned this in a conversation that I had with my neighbor when I lived in Michigan. I realized how if, if we're not freed from, by grace so that we do good works because we love our neighbor, then we're using our neighbor. You see, if we do good works because we want to please God, if we're being kind to our neighbor because we want to make God happy, we're using our neighbor. Ultimately, they're, they're just a way to get to God. We're not seeing them as a person, as a human being anymore. We're seeing them as something i got to do in order to serve God and keep him off my back. Whether that's as believers, when we think we're pursuing good works for that reason, especially someone who's an unbeliever who thinks their eternal salvation is dependent on how good they are to their neighbor, they're also using their neighbor to earn salvation. How can you possibly see and love your neighbor when all they are is a way for you to get to God, to make God happy? Brothers and sisters, grace frees us from that. God's wrath has been satisfied in Jesus Christ. And so when we do good works, it's not because we're trying to get God off our back or to please God or to make him happy. He's already pleased in Jesus Christ. The reason we do good works is because we love God and we love our neighbor and grace has freed us to do that. If we misunderstand that, even though we may... We believe in grace and may preach grace. We're legalists in our hearts. And we need to repent and be freed from that. So then finally, and back to Titus chapter 2. In verse 14, it begins with who again. This time it's speaking of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So the third and final thing is that redeeming grace encourages godly living. This passage tells us the purpose of Christ's death is that he would redeem his people from lawlessness and cleanse them for himself. Redemption is a great biblical term. That's why if you turn in, in your hymn books, you'll see that word over and over again. It's, it's, a, it's a great word. And one of the best illustrations of 
what it all means is in the Old Testament book of Ruth. In, in the book of Ruth, Naomi and her family move out of Israel and into Moab because there's a famine in the land. While they're there, they lose absolutely everything. Naomi's husband dies, her two sons die, all that she has left are her daughters-in-law, and she has nothing to give them. She has no more sons, she's too old to have sons, and even if she could have a son, by the time they're old enough, it wouldn't be helpful for these two women anyway. And so she tries to send them away, and of course, Ruth stays with her, and they go back to Israel. They have nothing. In, in Israel, and, and this is what the Bible prescribes, when a person finds themselves in a situation like that, they're, they're in poverty and they have nothing. There's a way for that to be remedied. It's called the kinsman redeemer. The, the job of the, this nearest relative was to help this person so they're no longer impoverished, so that they no longer have nothing. And they, they, by God's grace, they had a kinsman redeemer in Boaz. Not only did he help them financially, he married Ruth, uh, because to be widowed was, was a sentence to poverty in that time. So he... He married Ruth. Ruth had a child, and in and through Ruth, Naomi had another son. And that son, of course, ended up being one of the ancestors of the King David and ultimately of Christ. The, the story is a great illustration because Boaz is like Christ. You see, we we like Ruth and Naomi have absolutely nothing, spiritually speaking. We're impoverished. But Christ is our kinsman redeemer who comes to take us out of this spiritual poverty and make us citizens in his, in his home, to make us family, so that we're, no, we're his his um oh man i can't lost the word his assets become our assets and all our liabilities go to him of course christ has no liabilities but all of our liabilities go to him and he could bear them because he is the god man this is what jesus christ has done for everyone who believes in him he doesn't intend for us to st- He didn't come to redeem us so that we could still live like we're paupers. He didn't come to redeem us so that we could continue to live in the sin that made us need redemption in the first place. He came to rescue us from that. He came to purify. And purification, there was many rituals in the Old Testament that purified people and cleansed them. Christ does that for us. He purifies us. He he wants us out of sin. He wants us out of lawlessness. That was the whole purpose of his work. It's absolutely absurd to say that if you believe Jesus, if you believe in the grace of God, then 
that means you can live however you want. If you had someone who rescued you like Boaz, would you turn against him? Would you forsake all the good things he has done and run from him? You have had someone greater than Boaz if you're a believer in Christ do that for you. Are you really going to run from him? Flee from him? Are you going to pretend to live in poverty, in the poverty of sin, after he's done all this for you? It doesn't make any sense. Christ died to enable us to escape the, the guilt of sin, yes, but to escape sin altogether and to set us apart for God. His aim in this is that we would be dedicated to good works. Now, the question is, what, what is a good work, right? Um, there were times when uh, this was a, a very problematic question. But we understand the idea that basically to, to be a person who's zealous for good works, number one, means to live in obedience to God. So you're going to have a godly character. You're going to live in conformity to his law. You're going to love God and love your neighbor. But that means more than just giving to the poor or the things that people typically today think of as good works. It means being a father to your children and a husband to your wife. It means being a mother to your children and a good wife to your husband. It means being a faithful employee at work, serving God first and foremost, and loving your neighbor by providing a good service or product. Even these are good works, not just the things that we can... a A lot of people tend to think that Good works are being a deacon and being a pastor or a missionary or going to teach in Sunday school. And all of those things are good if God has called you to them. But if God hasn't called you to them, you can, you can do good works for him as well in the calling that God has placed you. And we do them out of gratitude and love for God because of all he's done for us in Christ. My friends, if you are here today and you're relying on your efforts and your good works, it's not, it will not help you to be right with God. In fact, it's a hindrance to be right with God. You're holding on to those rather than fleeing to Christ, the only one that can help you. You cannot help yourself. Your liabilities are too great. You need Christ. I pray that by God's grace, you'll find him today. Believers, I hope as you meditate on God's word, I hope this message has encouraged you to pursue godliness and good works for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for Christ and his goodness to us. We 
It's hard to even speak of, of the riches of his grace. You have shown us kindness in Christ that we are utterly undeserving of. And we give you thanks. We pray, Lord, that you would motivate us today to live for you by grace, not by law. Help us motivate us, Lord, so that we might adorn the gospel and bring praise to Christ. And we pray it all in Jesus' name.